If you listen to Erdogan, he wants to have people uh, go back to where they came from, go back to Syria. Right now, he's holding, in all fairness, he's holding millions of people. That would be all over the place if he wasn't holding them. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. I got the feeling that something ain't right. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yes, I'm stuck in the middle with you. From Pacifica Radio, this is the broadcast, as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI, Red Bluff Redding, KKRN Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka, in Oregon on KYAQ on the Central Coast, KSO in Cottage Grove, KEPW in Eugene. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania, WLRI, Maui, Hawaii, KAKU, Columbus, Ohio, WGRN, Palinville, New York, WLPP, Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR, New Orleans, Louisiana, WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire, WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ, Seattle, Washington, KODX, Janesville, Wisconsin, WADR, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the internets on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk. Blanketing the globe five days a week, usually hosted by Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com, and I promise you he will be back soon. But today, you still got me. I'm Nicole Sandler from NicoleSandler.com, holding down the fort until Brad and Desi can return. I promise you, if not sooner, they'll be back on Monday. And boy, do we have a lot to talk about today. Later on in the show, in the third and final segment, we will talk Medicare for All, because it's obviously one of the most important issues to many people who are going to be voting next November. And out of the 20-some-odd presidential candidates running for the Democratic nomination, most of them, not all, most of them say they support Medicare for All. But when you dig in, you find out, eh, it's really Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren who are talking about real Medicare for all. Though some people have questions about Elizabeth Warren, we're still waiting for clarification from her. I'm not willing to throw her under the bus because I think her intentions are for a single-payer program, but we do need clarification. But the others, they're talking about a public option and building on the Affordable Care Act. We will talk with Dr. Steffi Woolhandler, who has a new piece in The Nation She's one of the founders of Physicians for a National Health Program, who will explain to us what the difference is in all these plans. So that's coming up. But before we get to that, oh boy, do we have news to cover. I guess we can start with the bombing. Seriously. Shortly after 9 a.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday morning, Turkish President Erdogan announced on Twitter the start of a military offensive in northern Syria against Kurdish forces after Trump's decision to withdraw U.S. troops. He tweeted, quote, The Turkish armed forces, together with the Syrian National Army, just launched Operation Peace Spring against the PKK, YPG, and Daesh terrorists in northern Syria, obviously referring to the Syrian Kurdish force as well as ISIS. Quote, our mission is to prevent the creation of a terror corridor across our southern border and to bring peace to the area. Right. Erdogan's government has advocated for the creation of a Turkish-controlled safe zone in northeastern Syria that it asserts could accommodate millions of Syrian refugees living in Turkey. Now, although Turkey has long wanted to invade and considers the Kurdish forces terrorists, the Kurds are our allies. U.S. forces backed up the Kurds who, make no mistake, are responsible for defeating ISIS in Syria. 
Things escalated Sunday after Donald Trump spoke with Erdogan by phone, a call reportedly to smooth over Erdogan's disappointment that he and Trump didn't have a one-on-one meeting at the United Nations General Assembly last week. After the call concluded, the White House announced that U.S. forces would step aside to make way for a Turkish military offensive against the Kurds in northern Syria. The move is astonishing because the U.S.-backed Kurdish forces have been America's most reliable partners in Syria and played a huge role in the fight against ISIS. Turkey has long considered the U.S.-backed Kurdish militia, YPG, as a terrorist group and has wanted to eliminate it. In its statement, the White House added Turkey would now be responsible for all captured ISIS fighters who are currently being held by the U.S.-backed Kurdish forces in northern Syria. It just gets worse. On Monday morning, the New York Times reported, quote, Mr. Trump's decision goes against the recommendations of top officials in the Pentagon and the State Department who have sought to keep a small troop presence in northeast Syria to continue operations against ISIS and to act as a critical counterweight to Iran and Russia. Administration officials said Trump spoke directly with President Erdogan of Turkey on Sunday. On Sunday night, the press secretary issued this statement, quote, Today, President Donald J. Trump spoke with President Erdogan of Turkey by telephone. Turkey will soon be moving forward with its long-planned operation into northern Syria. The United States Armed Forces will not support or be involved in the operation. The United States forces, having defeated the ISIS territorial caliphate, will no longer be in the immediate area. The United States government has pressed France, Germany, and other European nations from which many captured ISIS fighters came to take them back, but they did not want them and refused. The United States will not hold them for what may be many years and great cost to the U.S. taxpayer. Turkey will now be responsible for all ISIS fighters in the area captured over the past two years in the wake of the defeat of the territorial caliphate by the United States. That's the end of the statement. Now, Brett McGurk, who's the former special envoy to counter ISIS under Trump, Obama, and Bush, took to Twitter Monday morning to explain. Let me share with you his tweets. He wrote, Donald Trump is not a commander-in-chief. He makes impulsive decisions with no knowledge or deliberation. He sends military personnel into harm's way with no backing. He blusters and then leaves our allies exposed when adversaries call his bluff or he confronts a hard phone call. The White House statement tonight on Syria, that's what I just read to you, after Trump spoke with Erdogan, demonstrates a complete lack of understanding of anything happening on the ground. The, quote, United States is not holding any ISIS detainees. They are all being held by the SDF, which Trump just served up to Turkey. Turkey has neither the intent, desire, nor capacity to manage 60,000 detainees, which state... And DOJ inspector generals warn is the nucleus for a resurgent ISIS, believing otherwise is a reckless gamble with our national security. Brett McGurk continued. He was on a roll. He said the Turkish proposed safe zone would effectively extend Turkey's border 30 kilometers into Syria, including areas of Christians, Kurds, and other vulnerable minorities. Our diplomats were working on a plan to forestall such a debacle. Where's Pompeo? Bottom line, writes Brett McGurk, Trump tonight, after one phone call with a foreign leader, provided a gift to Russia, Iran, and ISIS. So here we are. The pushback Trump experienced wasn't only from people like you and me, or only from Democrats. Republicans who spoke out were highly critical of the move, with the exception of Rand Paul. But even Lindsey Graham and Mitch McConnell had some harsh words for their idiotic leader. Donald Trump, who famously can't take criticism, then began backtracking. Of course, he did it on Twitter, where he tweeted, quote, As I have stated strongly before, and just to reiterate, if Turkey does anything that I, in my great and unmatched wisdom, consider to be off limits, I will totally destroy and obliterate the economy of Turkey I've done before. They must, with Europe and others, watch over the captured ISIS fighters and families. The U.S. has done far more than anyone could have ever expected, including the capture of 100% of the ISIS caliphate. Now is the time for others in the region, some of great wealth, to protect their own territory. The USA is great! 
And he's demented. Seriously, my brain hurts when I read his tweets. So after the news spread Wednesday morning that the invasion had begun, Trump again took to Twitter, proving that he lies every time he opens his damn mouth. He gave Erdogan the go-ahead to do this. Now he's claiming that he had nothing to do with it while he tweets idiotic statements that alternate between denying responsibility and making excuses for his actions. So he released a BS statement Wednesday that reads, quote, This morning, Turkey, a NATO member, invaded Syria. The United States does not endorse this attack and has made it clear to Turkey that this operation is a bad idea. There are no American soldiers in the area. From the first day I entered the political arena, I made it clear that I did not want to fight these endless, senseless wars, especially those that don't benefit the United States. Turkey has committed to protecting civilians, protecting religious minorities, including Christians. Christians? Gotta protect those Christians. What about the Kurds? Just asking. For a friend and ensuring no humanitarian crisis takes place, and we will hold them to this commitment. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, sorry. In addition, Turkey is now responsible for ensuring all ISIS fighters being held captive remain in prison and that ISIS does not reconstitute in any way, shape, or form. <laughs> sorry, it's hard to hold it together. Uh, he finished up by saying, we expect Turkey to abide by all of its commitments, and we continue to monitor the situation closely. So he's a bigger sucker than we already knew. Meanwhile, the Washington Post is reporting that in northeastern Syria on Wednesday, many residents were stealing themselves for the worst. They mentioned Michael Muhammad, a Kurdish father of three who owns a clothing store in Tal Ayad, which is about a quarter mile from the Turkish border, who said he had not had any customers since the day before. U.S. troops based in the town withdrew early Monday after the White House announcement. Mohammed said, quote, people are scared. When we used to see U.S. troops in the streets of Tel Abyad, we'd feel safe. They were here to protect us. Yesterday, we saw U.S. troops, but this time they were on their way out of the area, and that terrified people, he said. And the situation on the ground is even more dire. CNN's chief international correspondent, Clarissa Ward, Wednesday afternoon reported live from on the ground. We were right on the outskirts of the town of Ras Al Ain in the aftermath of those first wave of strikes coming from Turkish artillery. We believe we saw thick black plumes of smoke, at least six different strike targets. The air was just thick with that smoke. There was a fire also, apparently a cotton factory uh, that had caught fire after being hit by a strike. And then what we saw was this just overwhelming wave of civilians trying desperately to get out of this town, fearful for their lives. The streets choked with traffic, uh, cars with mattresses strapped to roofs, women, children in the back of flatbed trucks. I approached some of them and asked them where they were going, and they told me simply, we don't know where we're going. We don't know where it's safe. They have no sense of the scope and scale of this Turkish operation. We're hearing that at least four different towns were targeted as a part of the first wave of this Turkish military operation. Uh, Kurdish authorities are also saying one civilian has been killed, seven injured, including two children. And the question that everyone is asking is what next and where next? And this is a vast area. You're talking about a 200-mile swath of territory along that border, making it very difficult for civilians to know where exactly they should head to next. But a palpable sense of fear and concern here. A lot of Kurdish people had dared to hope that perhaps President Trump would change his mind, that perhaps the U.S. would intervene and avert this from happening. But now it's clear this Turkish military operation is underway and it's clearly going to be bloody. And it's devastating. So meanwhile, while that's going on, Donald Trump had an event in the White House. He did sign some executive order again, overstepping his authority as president, but I digress. After the signing ceremony, he took some questions from the gathered press. Many of the questions, of course, dealt with the situation happening now on the ground in Syria. Again, Donald Trump knew exactly what Erdogan had in mind, knew he wanted to go in and obliterate the Kurds 
from that region. Yet he claimed that he warned Erdogan to do it humanely. What? I do agree on sanctions, but I actually think much tougher than sanctions if he doesn't do it in as humane a way as possible. But I've gotten him to stop for virtually from the first day that I was in office. But they've wanted to fight, and that's the way it is, and they've done it for so long. Yes, go ahead, please. So what does this humane way as possible actually mean? Does, well, does, does it mean civilians? We're going to have to define or? that as we go along. Uh, they want to, uh, if you listen to Erdogan, he wants to uh, have people uh, go back to where they came from, go back to Syria. Right now, he's holding, in all fairness to him, he's holding millions of people that would be all over the place if he wasn't holding them. So he wants to repatriate. He wants to have them go back into the area that he's looking at. But we'll see. We'll see how he does it. He can do it in a soft manner. He can do it in a very tough manner. And if he does it unfairly, he's going to pay a very big economic price. Oh, right. That's his threat to obliterate their economy, because he's done it before, don't you know? Now, as to all of those ISIS prisoners in that statement, Trump said that Turkey's going to be in charge of them. Oh, what could possibly go wrong there? Uh, they should go back, by the way. They should go back to Europe. Many of them came from Europe, but they should go back to Germany, to France, to I spoke with Boris Johnson, a couple to uh, UK, some to UK, actually, but they came from various parts of Europe. They didn't come from our country. And we did them a big favor. And we said to France, we said to Germany, we said to uh, various countries uh, in Europe, we'd like you to take your people back. Well, we don't want them. We don't want them. How about you taking them? I said, we don't want them either. Nobody wants them. They're bad, but somebody has to watch over them. I said, look, we did you a big favor. You take your people back. You take them back. They're citizens in many cases of those countries, of France, Germany. They didn't want to take them back. I gave him one chance, I gave him another chance, I gave him a third chance, and I even gave him a fourth chance. Right. They didn't want to take him back. Not that I blame him too much. They're used to this with the United States, taking advantage of the United States, whether it's <laughs> on trade or NATO, they take advantage of the United States. But uh, we uh, think that maybe the Kurds will do a job, and if what? not the Kurds, we think Turkey will do a job. What? But we have thousands of people, thousands. I don't know if you know that. We have thousands of captured fighters and thousands and tens of thousands of family members. And uh, we did a big favor to a lot of countries, and those countries uh, didn't want to take them back. So that's the way it goes. Steve. Some of these ISIS fighters escape and pose a threat elsewhere. Well, they're going to be escaping to Europe. Oh, that's where they that's want to go. Okay. They want to go back to their homes. But Europe <laughs> didn't want them from us. We could have given it to them. They could have had trials. They could have done oh whatever they wanted. But as usual, uh, it's not reciprocal. You know my favorite word, reciprocal. That's hey. all I want. I don't want an edge. I just want reciprocal. And it's not reciprocal, Steve. It's not a fair deal for the United States. There are no words. The man is a walking, walking, talking moron. By the way, breaking news, as we're in production for today's program, Senators Lindsey Graham and Chris Van Hollen, that would be a Republican and a Democrat, Wednesday afternoon announced they have reached an agreement on new sanctions against Turkey after the country launched a military operation in northern Syria. Uh, Graham tweeted... I am pleased to have reached a bipartisan agreement with Senator Chris Van Hollen on severe sanctions against Turkey for their invasion of Syria. He added that, quote, while the administration refuses to act against Turkey, I expect strong bipartisan support. Most members of Congress believe it would be wrong to abandon the Kurds who have been strong allies against ISIS. Newsflash, we already did. And Lindsey Graham, this is your president, the guy you make excuses for, the guy you allow to get away with the crap he does on a daily basis. And Trump is just delusional. He talks in circles, as you heard. He makes no sense. And he has no clue what he's talking about, as evidenced by the audio of that press conference. Now, uh, I struggled. I listened to it. I tried to pull audio. I could just take so much. So what made more sense to me was reading Daniel Dale's Twitter feed. Daniel Dale is the basically the Trump fact checker for CNN. So here are some of the highlights he pulled out. 
from this impromptu press conference. He writes, asked about Turkey, Trump says, quote, they've been wanting to do this for many years, as you know. He falsely says the U.S. presence in Syria was only supposed to last 30 days. He says, we're speaking to both sides, seeing what can be made out of the situation. And then he said, the U.S. has removed some of the most dangerous ISIS prisoners from the area. Quote, a certain number of ISIS fighters that are particularly bad to make sure they're not let out after Turkey's invasion. Yeah, right. Uh, For his decision on Syria, Trump says, quote, we've had tremendous support outside of, quote, the little Washington area. This is a brilliant quote. Trump is emphasizing the history of conflict between Turkey and the Kurds, suggesting it can't be contained by the U.S. forever. Quote, it's amazing when you look at history and you look at culture. He just says words that don't mean anything. Then showing his brilliant command of world history, sarcasm alert, um, (laughs) I'm just reading to you from Daniel Dale. Okay, he says, Trump says Turkey and the Kurds is like Israel and Palestinians in terms of how old and strong the hatred is, except maybe the hatred is even stronger. And in other brilliance, Trump on the Kurds, quote, they didn't help us in the Second World War. They didn't help us with Normandy. He says they're only interested in fighting for, quote, their land. He adds, with all of that being said, we like the Kurds. All right, this is just too much. Now, I'd bet good money that Trump did all of this to deflect attention from the impeachment inquiry. But we can walk and chew gum at the same time. So in a moment, we'll look at what this administration is doing to obstruct Congress from carrying out its constitutional duty of executive oversight. I told you there's a lot of news today. I'm Nicole Sandler, your guest host on today's edition of The Bradcast. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on The Bradcast and The Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. It's Nicole Sampler back with you, your guest host today on the Bradcast. So in the last segment, we dealt with everything going on with Syria and the Kurds and, oh, God, Donald Trump betraying our allies. So now... It's time to look at the latest news in the impeachment inquiry of Donald Trump. In an interesting display of hypocrisy, one need look no further than Donald Trump's sycophant, Lindsey Graham, who makes continual excuses for all of Trump's high crimes and misdemeanors, though he has called him out on Turkey. But there's no excuse for this. Here's Lindsey Graham in December of 1998 talking about Richard Nixon's refusal to comply with congressional subpoenas as grounds for impeachment. Article 3 of impeachment against Richard Nixon, the article was based on the idea that Richard Nixon, as president, failed to comply with subpoenas of Congress. Congress was going through its oversight function to provide oversight of the president. When asked for information, Richard Nixon chose not to comply, and the Congress back in that time said, you're taking impeachment away from us. You're becoming the judge and jury. It is not your job to tell us what we need. It Hmm. is your job to comply with the things we need to provide oversight over you. The day Richard Nixon failed to answer that subpoena is the day that he was subject to impeachment because he took the power from Congress over the impeachment process away from Congress and he became the judge and jury. Huh. Interesting, because that's exactly what Donald Trump is doing now, but on steroids. On Tuesday, the U.S. ambassador to the European Union, Gordon Sundland, who, by the way, is a wealthy Trump mega-donor who gave a million dollars to the inaugural committee to purchase that post. Just 
saying. He was scheduled for a deposition behind closed doors in front of the House Foreign Affairs, Intelligence, and Oversight Committees. He was reportedly called by the State Department after midnight Monday night and told not to show up. A few hours later, an eight-page letter from White House counsel to House Democratic leaders was delivered, calling the House's impeachment inquiry illegitimate. Most legal scholars dismissed the letter as bunk, saying it has more references to cable news sources than to actual law, and lies and false statements are well represented. White House counsel Pat Cipollone, I think, uh, signed the letter, and one of the lines in it says, Given that your inquiry lacks any legitimate constitutional foundation, any pretense of fairness, or even the most elementary due process protections, the executive branch cannot be expected to participate in it. Seriously? Impeachment is in the Constitution. It's the very definition of a legitimate constitutional foundation. That's why this letter has been dismissed as bunk. Now, the status of the deposition of former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch, scheduled for Friday, will likely be blocked, too. The Democrats have already issued a formal subpoena for Sunland and threatened to do the same for any State Department officials blocked from testifying, along with the messages or documents they may have. So far, the Democrats have subpoenaed Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, the White House, the Pentagon, the Office of Management and Budget, Rudy Giuliani, and, as mentioned, Ambassador Gordon Sundland. Now, Donald Trump, who's already thrown everyone from Mike Pence to Mike Pompeo under the bus, now adds Energy Secretary Rick Perry to the pile. Reports surfacing now say Trump directed Perry and two top State Department officials to deal with his private attorney, Rudy Giuliani, when the Ukrainian president sought to meet with Trump in clear circumvention of official channels. And new reports are shedding more light on that July 25th phone call between Trump and Ukraine's new president, Zelensky. You know, the, the, the call that Trump keeps describing as perfect. CNN's reporting that almost as soon as the call ended, officials were worried about the pressure Trump exerted on Zelensky and efforts to contain the fallout began. At least one NSC official alerted the White House's national security lawyers about his concerns. Those same lawyers would later order the transcript moved to that highly classified server. It's always the cover-up. The White House official who listened in on the call characterized the conversation as, quote, crazy, frightening, and was described as shaken by the call. This according to a memo written by the whistleblower after the conversation with the White House official. But on top of that, Trump continues to smear and dismiss the charges leveled by the whistleblower, despite more evidence being constantly revealed, backing up all of the assertions in the original post. In fact, in the press conference Trump held <laughs> earlier, um, there were a lot of quotes dealing with this, but I'm not going to spread his propaganda because what the man does is lie. He lies with every word that comes out of his mouth, but you already knew that. Oh, there is this. As much as Trump resisted trying to build a war room, trying to put anything in place to deal with the impeachment that's coming, on Tuesday, they cut a deal with <laughs> former Congressman Trey Gowdy to act as Trump's outside counsel in the impeachment process. Now, you remember Trey Gowdy. He's the guy who uh, ran the Benghazi investigation, the interminable, nonstop, ridiculous Benghazi hearings that went on for years. Just saying. Oh, by the way, this was Trey Gowdy during those Benghazi hearings talking about withholding information from Congress. The notion that you can withhold information and documents from Congress, no matter whether you're the party in power or not in power, is wrong. Respect for the rule of law must mean something irrespective of the vicissitudes of political cycles. Vicissitudes. Way to go, Trey. Hey. The bottom line right now with this impeachment inquiry and process is the Trump administration has said we're not playing ball. We will not cooperate with anything you do. So now we wait and see how the Democrats deal with it. I know they'll take it to the courts. We just have to hope that these cases come before judges who put country before party. In other news, 
Elizabeth Warren has passed Joe Biden in the real clear politics running average of presidential polls for the first time. And on Wednesday, she announced a change in policy. Elizabeth Warren had come under some criticism from some uh, progressives for saying that although she held no big dollar fundraisers and took no corporate money during the primary, she had been saying that all bets were off during the general, that she wasn't going to unilaterally disarm. Well, that all changed on Wednesday when Elizabeth Warren extended her no fundraisers pledge to the general election. She did it on Twitter, where she wrote, As part of my campaign, I haven't been taking PAC money or federal lobbyist money or giving special access to rich donors through call time or high-dollar fundraisers. And when I'm the Democratic nominee for president, I'm not going to change a thing in how I run my campaign. No PAC money? No federal lobbyist money, no special access or call time with wealthy donors or high-dollar fundraisers to underwrite my campaign. She continued, My campaign is and will continue to be a grassroots campaign, funded by working people chipping in a few bucks here and there. Chip in if that's the kind of campaign you think candidates should be running. Then she continued, I will also do everything I can to build our party infrastructure and strengthen Democratic candidates up and down the ballot across the country. Now, she's not the only candidate speaking out. Bernie Sanders is back in Vermont at home, resting up after a minor heart attack last week. On Tuesday, he was going out and stopped to speak with reporters and told them that there's going to be some changes in his campaign going forward basically saying he's going to slow down the pace a little bit. I must confess that I was dumb. I was born, and thank God, that I have a lot of energy. And, you know, during this campaign, I've been doing, in some cases, three or four rallies a day, running all over the state, Iowa, New Hampshire, wherever. And yet I, in the last month or two, uh, just was more fatigued than I usually have been. So, uh, and I should have listened to those symptoms. I should have listened to those symptoms. So if there's any message that I hope we can get out there is that I want people to pay attention to their symptoms. That's really good advice. Thank you, Bernie Sanders. One thing Bernie and Elizabeth Warren have in common is their belief in a Medicare for all system for health care. We're going to get into that topic next. I'm Nicole Sandler on the broadcast. What the public hears on the public airwaves matters. Please help us stay on your public airwaves by going to bradblog.com donate to help keep us going. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of you. Welcome back to the broadcast. I'm your guest host, Nicole Sandler of The Nicole Sandler Show at NicoleSandler.com. We're going to take a break from Trump and impeachment and the Kurds and all the, the bad stuff going on and think about the good things that are possible, that are coming, that are in our future, as long as we all get out and vote the right way on November 3rd, 2020. One of the big issues, of course, is health care and the fight over Medicare for all. There's a great article now posted up at thenation.com that explains the difference between actual Medicare for all and what many of the Democratic presidential hopefuls are proposing, which is not Medicare for all. So Dr. Steffi Woolhandler is our guest. She's one of the authors of a new article that appears in the October 21st print edition of The Nation magazine and is online now at thenation.com. I'll link to it from bradblog.com, where I post the podcast of today's show. The article is entitled, The Public Option on Healthcare is a Poison Pill. And Steffi, I'm so glad you wrote this, because as I'm watching the debate over who we're going to nominate to run against Donald Trump in uh, November of 2020, one of the biggest issues for most Americans is healthcare. And there are a lot of, uh, it seems like everybody has jumped on the Bernie Sanders bandwagon and calling for Medicare for all. But what each candidate is calling Medicare for all, they're not all created equal. Well, are they? No, I mean, maintaining a substantial role for private insurance companies 
would uh, poison the system. The uh, inclusion of private insurance companies raises uh, system-wide costs. Uh, it raises system-wide costs because they have huge overhead and profits that take out of the system. Uh, and they're pretty smart about pushing the high costs onto the taxpayers and onto people uh, enrolled in Medicare or public option. So, you know, if the private insurance companies just had their high overhead and profits and their own enrollees had to pay for all of that cost, uh, they would be outcompeted. Nobody would enroll in private insurance. Why would you pay uh, 12 or 14 percent overhead for private insurance when public Medicare uh, runs for about 2 percent overhead? The problem is that the insurance industry uh, has that high overhead and it pushes those costs onto other insurers and onto the taxpayers, making the entire healthcare system more expensive. Exactly. So so for the candidates, for instance, let's let's pull Joe Biden, for example. Joe Biden is talking about a um, well, he wants to just build on the Affordable Care Act, which served its purpose. I I will admit that, Uh, you know, I I I survived lung cancer because I had insurance through the Affordable Care Act. But I think of how much better it would have been if I had Medicare. Um, but the, the um, So Joe Biden is saying, well, we'll put in a public option. The problem, as I understand, uh, and more so from reading your article up at The Nation, is that um, if, if you still have the for-profit insurance industry pulling so much money out of the system and a public option where not everybody is bought into a Medicare system, those extra costs are still baked in the cake. I mean, you, you, you can't lower yeah. costs for everybody if not everybody is in the same not-for-profit plan, right? Or am I oversimplifying it? Well, that's, no, th- that's absolutely true, that the private insurance industry not only has their own high overhead, which is 12% in the commercial private insurance, uh, 14% in the uh, private Medicare Advantage plans, they not only have their own high overhead and profits that they add to the cost, but they impose huge costs on doctors and hospitals. Because if you have a multi-payer system, it means doctors and hospitals have to spend a huge share of their total uh, revenues just sending bills and dealing with insurance paperwork. Um, And we estimate that the excess administrative costs of American hospitals relative to countries that have a Medicare for all system, the excess administrative costs of American hospitals are about 12% of total hospital costs, um, which is a huge amount of money every year just to be spending sending hospital bills. Um, So you have huge administrative costs at the insurance level. You have huge administrative costs at the doctor and hospital level. And consequently, for any amount of money that you spend, you end up getting less actual health care and much more bureaucracy. And the extra cost of that bureaucracy does make uh, the uh, universal health care very expensive and, and frankly probably puts universal health care without copayments and deductibles financially out of reach. That system where everyone has care, where there's no copayments, no deductibles for medically necessary care, that's only affordable if you capture the administrative savings of having a single payer. Right. And that means everybody, one payer, the government, for all the bills so they don't have to deal with, you know, sending the the, the paperwork for each individual insurance company out. That's where the overhead comes in. So in in this article at The Nation, you you say public option proposals come in three main varieties. And the first one is simple buy-in, as we were just discussing. That's uh, like the proposal made by Joe Biden. And and you say Pete Buttigieg, who's got a catchy name on it, is like Medicare for all who want it or some nonsense like that. But it isn't really Medicare yeah. for all, right? The, the next one. Oh, no, yeah. no. It, yeah, it, in order to have a simple buy-in, you have to have eight or $10,000 in your pocket mm. to go and buy into Medicare. You know, and how many of the uninsured can actually afford that? A few of them can. And, you know, having the option of buying into Medicare is probably pretty good for those who can afford it. But um, it's not going to get you to universal health care, just saying uh, you can buy into Medicare for the full cost of it. So the the simple buy-in, you know, there's nothing 
wrong with it, but it's uh, other than the fact that it doesn't get you anywhere close to universal health care. Gotcha. All right. So the second mm-hmm. one, the second variant that you talk about mm-hmm. is pay or play. You say this is similar to the plan advanced by the Center for American Progress and endorsed by Beto O'Rourke. So what's the difference between pay or play and the simple buy-in? Yeah, well, under the pay or play, um, employers would have the option of um, either purchasing private insurance for their employees or paying an 8% payroll tax. And uh, what that would mean is that many uh, employers with low-wage workers would find it cheaper to uh, just uh, 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 turn their their workers over to the uh, public plan and pay the payroll tax, whereas uh, employers of uh, uh, highly paid workers, lots of young male workers mm-hmm. who use less health care, they would find it uh, in their financial interest to just provide the insurance and not pay that very high payroll tax. So you're going to end up with a two-tiered system with um, basically tech firms and finance firms uh, and similar firms buying private insurance uh, and saving some money, not having to pay the tax, whereas uh, the tax-funded system would get a collection of uh, poorer workers and uh, sicker workers. So it's unequal. I I think the bigger problem is what we're talking about in terms of the um, – oh, and then people who didn't get uh, insurance through their employer – uh, would automatically be enrolled in the public system, right. but they would have to pay large copayments and deductibles, and probably many of them would be paying premiums. So you could be in the public system, but you'd still have very high out-of-pocket costs. And um, I think it's actually an illustration of the more general point we were talking about is that if you leave the private insurance industry in the healthcare system, the uh, costs are going to be very very high, and it's going to put pressure uh, on the system to charge patients premiums, co-payments, and deductibles because just the costs otherwise are so high. So you end up with a system that uh, perhaps enrolls everyone, but like the Affordable Care Act, uh, uh, often enrolls them in plans that come with very high costs to the right. patient. And, and again, so it, it all goes a, mm-hmm. it, it all goes back to the fact that these for-profit Insurance company, I call them extortionists, so we can get into that in a little while, but either you pay up or you go, don't get health care, um, that, that they're still sucking so much profit out of what should be a nonprofit uh, enterprise. It shouldn't be a business. It shouldn't be, be make a money-making venture right. that because of the, all the profits right. they're pulling out, the savings aren't being passed along to the, the final right. consumer. Yes, absolutely. The savings aren't there both because of their profits and the huge administrative mm-hmm. apparatus that they impose on the system uh, in order to extract their profits. Gotcha. So the administrative costs of uh, private insurance this year are, are uh, just a little under $300 billion. You know, it's, uh, we're probably on $250, $270 billion for their administration and profits. That's really a lot of money, even in health care. And um, that having to pay that money, having that be part of the healthcare system means the money is really not going to be there for uh, the patients to cover their copay, to get rid of their copayments, get rid of their deductibles, uh, and make sure that the whole system is affordable. Gotcha. Now, the third of these um, uh, possible, the third uh, variant of the public option plan is, I think, the scariest of all. This is the one, um, Medicare Advantage for All, and you say this is the one favored by Kamala Harris, which is uh, frustrating because she, at the beginning, was saying, oh, I'm all in, Medicare for All, I'm with Bernie, and and then she kept backtracking, and then basically what she's a proponent of is a Medicare Advantage for All, which is the for-profit insurance companies run the Medicare Advantage programs. That's the problem with Medicare Advantage now, right? Yes. Well, the Medicare Advantage uh, program um, uh, allows people who turn 65 to either go into the traditional Medicare, which is like really like a single-payer system, um, but just for the people who are in it, let's say, uh, or they can enroll in the Medicare Advantage plan, which is a private insurance plan, like a managed care plan, 
with a narrow network of providers with restrictions, what hospitals you can go to, um, those plans have overhead of between 13.7 and 14 percent. Mm. Um, and the way they make their money is by cherry picking yep. healthier patients, lemon dropping, getting rid of their enrollees who get sick. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and uh, they often do that through network restrictions. So they'll make it difficult for people who need specialists to see specialists because they'll restrict the network. Uh, and then because of the way Medicare pays Medicare Advantage, they often make tons of money by upcoding. That is telling Medicare that the patients are much sicker huh. than they actually are. So um, Medicare, the taxpayers will give Medicare Advantage a big boost in their premiums, hundreds of dollars a month extra yep. from the taxpayers and premiums if the patient, for instance, has um, uh, arthritis. Right. Okay. okay. Now, virtually everyone over the age of 65 could say they have arthritis, but most of the times that doesn't appear as a diagnosis. But the Medicare Advantage plans label people as having arthritis uh, when they have, uh, you know, really relatively minor uh, pain. They label people as having depression when they get sad from time to time. Uh, as it turns out, this is sort of medical issue. Uh, in older people, it's fairly easy to label people with diagnoses like lung disease or heart disease, um, when in fact those changes are very mild and not really causing the patient symptoms. Um, just as you age, your lung function and heart function gets to be a little bit weaker. And if it's not causing you symptoms, you don't need to have those labels placed on you. And yet the Medicare Advantage plans can profit by lay, putting those labels onto people and telling Medicare, oh, uh, you know, this patient, she's got arthritis, she's got depression, she's got uh, heart failure, she's got lung problems, when in fact the patient's pretty much asymptomatic or, you wow. know, requires really minimal care for those sets of symptoms. So that's what the the Medicare Advantage plans have been doing. I, this is not theoretical, what I'm talking to you about. It's been documented repeatedly uh, by economists and others that uh, the Medicare Advantage plans are exaggerating these diagnoses. Often they're just lying about the diagnoses. That's found sometimes in CMS audits. Mm-hmm. And consequently, the taxpayers are paying them these huge premiums uh, for, you know, on the assumption that the patients are very sick when, in fact, the patients are not nearly as sick as what they're saying. Um, and the MedPAC, uh, which is Congress's Medicare Payment Advisory Commission, that's a watchdog agency set up by Congress, MedPAC year in and year out comes in with a report saying Medicare is overpaying Medicare Advantage plans uh-huh. because of upcoding. Wow. We ought to be cutting the payments to Medicare Advantage. Um, but repeatedly, the, med- the private insurance industry has intervened, they've lobbied, and prevented the, uh, the CMS the administrators of Medicare prevented the taxpayers from lowering these very high payments to Medicare Advantage plans. And, of course, the Trump administration has just been pouring money yep. from the taxpayers into private insurance. They've given them to, uh, two large raises in the premiums they receive, even though we're still hearing from MedPAC that they're already overpaid, and they're pro- going to let um, – Medicare Advantage plans do things like offer patients free groceries and dog food. Oh, my God. Uh, free transportation. And, you know, if people need that stuff, that's fine. But it, there's no reason why that needs to be uh, – that that should be distributed at the discretion of the private insurance industry if we're going to provide those services, which perhaps sometimes we should. They need to be distributed fairly and not uh, – not by the private insurance industry. Of course. Um, you know, the thing with Med- Medicare Advantage is from time to time, you know, it, there have been good administrators uh, in CMS off and on over the decades that we've had these Medicare managed care, private managed care programs. Uh, the administrators sometimes try to control the misbehaviors of these Medicare Advantage plans. Um, not the Trump administration, but other administrations have, in fact, tried to control Medicare Advantage, and they've always failed. And the um, private health insurance industry in the United States is incredibly good at cheating. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're incredibly creative, and 
uh, even when the when good administrators, good regulators are in Washington trying to make uh, the program work, the private insurance industry year in, year out has been able to game the system and raise costs to taxpayers. Sure. And, and, the, and the other thing about Medicare Advantage that um, I, I think is the main problem with it is that they can still deny your deny your claims. They can say, nope, you're not covered for that. We're not covering that medication. We're not covering that procedure. We're not covering this hospitalization. Because once again, it is a private for-profit company administering the plan, as opposed to if you are in Medicare with a Medicare supplemental, as opposed to a, a Medicare Advantage plan, they can't, they don't turn you down. You can pick whatever doctor you want. You can go to whatever yeah. hospital you want. There are no networks to uh, adhere to, and, and they can't say, we're not paying this claim, right? Right. No, that's absolutely true of something is a benefit under Medicare. It's a benefit at whatever doctor or hospital you go to. And that's very important if you're sick. You know, if you're lucky enough to be a very healthy person. Then it's fine. It probably doesn't matter. (laughs) That's fine. You go to the the doctor in the network and, you know, whatever you get, you check up. Uh, But if someone is really sick, uh, for instance, if they have a rare cancer or a surgically complicated cancer, they may really need to be at a cancer center mm-hmm. uh, or they have a, a, a rare disease of any type. You may want to go to an academic medical center or to a specialist and they may not be with, you know, often the Medicare Advantage plans will not allow expensive specialists into their networks and the patient is really out of luck. Uh, and, of course, what the Medicare Advantage plan wants to see is they want you to leave Medicare Advantage and go back to traditional Medicare, which is what probably that's what the patient should do. It's in their interest. But the effect of that is that all this money is being paid to Medicare Advantage. And when patients get really, really sick, they're pushed out of Medicare Advantage and ending up back in traditional Medicare being paid for by the taxpayers and raising the cost to the taxpayers. So, right, um, and and the other thing, a that, lot of cheating going on. Right, mm-hmm. that, that what I've learned because my husband is on Medicare. I'm still five years away. I mean, I never thought I'd get to the point where I'd wish to be 65 years old, but here I turn 60 <laughs> next month, which is the worst time because everything is so expensive and it's hard to get coverage. But back to Medicare for a moment. Medicare Advantage. The, the the reason people choose Medicare Advantage is because of cost, because they give you these incentives. They give you everything, and and in the case of say my husband at no additional premium. So he doesn't have an extra premium for the Medicare Advantage plan that covers, in addition to medical, dental, vision, gym membership. As you were talking, they give you all these extras. Now, if you were to get a straight Medicare supplemental, the cost is too prohibitive for us. And that's why people do go to these Medicare Advantage plans because they're taxpayer subsidized. And, 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 but you're leaving yourself open to be turned down when you have, when you get sick, that's the catch 22, right? That's, that's true. For the average enrollee in Medicare Advantage, they save about $50 a month, which is real money for a lot of people. For him, it would have been, it would be a few hundred, it would be a few hundred dollars a month in our case. It comes yeah, out to but on money. average, the average is about fifty. Uh-huh. Um, you know, so th- there are some uh, savings for people, and that's of course why people enroll. And you know, uh, uh, and I, I have no no problem with people enrolling if that's going to save them a bunch of money. But the restriction you get is that you can't see the doctor of your choice. You can't see the you can't go to specialized providers if that issue comes up. Um, and, you know, you're dealing with these networks and managed care rules, which you don't have to deal with in traditional Medicare. And, you know, the reason the Medicare Advantage can give you the $500 or so a year, $600 a year in additional benefits uh, is mostly they've cheated so much and gotten so much higher premiums in the first place. Right. They've raised the price to the entire system. <laughs> to the taxpayers, to the folks who enroll in traditional Medicare. We're all paying for this through their cheating. And then um, of the oh, uh, several, thousand dollar per, several thousand dollars per enrollee that they've cheated the taxpayers out of each year, they kick back, uh, you know, 50 or $60 a month on average uh, in these additional benefits. 
Uh, but it's a losing system for the American taxpayers as a whole. You know, it's, it's of course. Uh, uh, can make sense for an individual patient, but it's a losing system for the for Americans as a whole. So, what do and, you? Uh, we're speaking with uh, Dr. Steffi Woolhandler. She, uh, along with uh, Dr. David Himmelstein, wrote a piece in the. It's in the October twenty first print edition of the Nation magazine. It's online now. It's titled "The Public Option on Healthcare Is a Poison Pill." The industry loves this this uh, debate on the left because they're getting away with calling these public option ideas uh, Medicare for all when they're not. And in fact, that's the point of this article is that um, you say savings would come from Medicare for all will not come from a straight, you know, a, a plan that offers a public option. It's not the same thing, although some of these candidates and insurance companies will tell you they are. No, Medicare for all is a single system that generates huge administrative savings, probably about half a trillion dollars in administrative savings. And you take per year and you take that half a trillion dollars and use it to get rid of co-payments and deductibles uh, and and other out-of-pocket costs. That's the core economics of Medicare, single-payer Medicare for all. Get rid of all the administrative savings and, and spend that money on care. And um, you can only do that with a single payer. If you leave those public uh, insurance companies in the middle of it, you're going to have their administrative overhead costs. You're going to have the doctors and hospitals administrative costs. You're going to lose most of that $500 billion, half a trillion dollars in annual savings. And you're just not going to have the money to provide care for everyone. So that's the reason why private insurance is a public pill, a poison pill. Mm-hmm. It makes the entire system unaffordable. I got gotcha. you. And I hope other people okay. are getting it. I hope they read this article. Again, Steffi Woolhandler, you and David Himmelstein are the co-founders of Physicians for National Health Program. Um, you've been around for a long time doing this work. We're closer than ever before, uh, thanks to Bernie Sanders, I believe, um, in pushing for a Medicare for all single-payer health care system in this country. Um, do you see it there as like something you can grab or do you feel like we're close to it? Well, the thing that's really encouraging is there's actually a mass movement now Uh for single-payer Medicare for All. It used to be this wonky question that uh, I'm a health policy professor and a physician, so the health policy community and the physician community used to talk about it, um, you know, and uh, debate about it, but there was not a mass movement until really beginning in 2016 with the Sanders campaign. So... Uh, now there's much more momentum behind it. Many candidates are talking about it. Uh, some, you know, talking about it as a real single-payer system. Some just using the words Medicare for all. But the candidates, in a way, are less important than the fact that the American people really seem uh, mobilized and interested in the issue in this way that I've never seen in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. So, yes, I'm very encouraged. And I think if people listen to podcasts, educate themselves, really learn um, – the ins and outs of how to make a Medicare for all single payer system work. Uh, we're well on our way to achieving it. Awesome. Well, Steffi Woolhandler, I know you've been doing this work for a long, long time. We spoke years ago uh, on PNHP uh, issues, and thank you for doing this. I will put a link to your article up at The Nation at both my website and on bradblog.com. I hope people read it because it, it, it's a great, informative piece with facts about what these different candidates are proposing and, and how they differ and what's really Medicare for all and what isn't. So thank you for this. Thank you for your time today. I really appreciate it. Okay. It's been my pleasure. I'll be sure to link to that article at thenation.com from bradblog.com where I'll post this episode of the broadcast. I hope you'll check it out because there's even a lot more information in the article than we were able to discuss in that interview. It's a good guide to keep with you when you're determining who you want to vote for. Just a suggestion. And with that, we've reached the end of another edition of the Bradcast. I'm Nicole Sandler, your trusty guest host, holding down the fort here for Brad and Desi, who are working their way back. Frankly, between you and I, there's been so much breaking news during the few weeks that they've been gone that it's going to take a little time to catch up because, well, they were focused on family and not Donald Trump, which is understandable. So 
Who knows? Maybe we'll hear from Brad before the weekends. If not, he'll certainly be back on Monday. Thank you for bearing with me. In the meantime, if you've enjoyed the work I've done in their absence, I hope you'll check out my program. You can find it at NicoleSandler.com. The podcasts are there. The live broadcast is there. Lots of other cool information on the website should you care to explore it. Have at it. And feel free to, uh, you know, send me your feedback. I'm on Twitter at Nicole Sandler. You can email me, Nicole at NicoleSandler.com. And, um, hey, thank you for listening. All right. Until next time, I am Nicole Sandler, in for Brad and Desi, and really serious when I say to all of us, good luck, world. <laughs>